thank you very much, everybody. Uh, in my country, it's um, traditional now for speakers to acknowledge uh, the country they are on, and I'd like to pay my respect to the First Nations uh, of this land, uh, particularly in this region, uh, the Mohawk, and to uh, recognise the Iroquois uh, Six Nations. Uh, and I would like to pay my respect to elders past, present uh, and future and to acknowledge any First Nation people who are here in the room tonight and pay my respects. So to start with I'm going to take you on a tour of the climate change regime, the International um, Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, created by uh, all uh, members who are signatory to that convention uh, within the United Nations framework. That great uh, and uh, essential organisation uh, that was created by the world community uh, in the wake uh, of the tragedy of the Second World War. Um, and what I want to do is show you an example of how the United Nations uh, kind of functions when it does action on a particular issue. It may be human rights, uh, it may be climate change, uh, it may be uh, some other activity. But I want to walk you through, if you like, what a convention might look like if we were to visualise it and put all its different components uh, together for people uh, to see. Then secondly, having given you an introduction to the climate change uh, regime at the uh, international level, I want to give you an update of where the climate talks are at. So I'll go from quite broad to pretty pointy uh, and I'll be explaining what's happened uh, over the last uh, few years, particularly in relation to market mechanisms and emissions trading and carbon offsets and those kind of market-based activities where we are trying to use uh, the power or harness the power of capital uh, to do good uh, in the world. Uh, and I'll give you an update uh, on the climate talks. We're up to Conference of Parties 24 now. So these talks have been going for 24 years. Uh, some of you may think 24 years of hot air, what a waste, but I often say sometimes you can't see the impacts of something if it's still there and still staring you in the face. And the fact that we're still here uh, is a testament to a certain extent of the effectiveness of some of the actions that have already been taken. So we shouldn't all be doom and gloom. All right, so in 1992, we get a seminal moment in history. Um, it's called the Rio Earth Summit, or the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. And it is a seminal moment in time. The Cold War is coming to an end. The Iron Curtain is raising. There is a wind of change blowing through the world because people want to do something about this new existential threat called pollution. And they, first of all, come together in the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, or UNSAID, the fancy term for Rio. It's in Rio de Janeiro, hence the Rio Earth Summit. 
and they come to agreement on three major aspects uh, of environmental pollution and environmental degradation. First of all, they agree that the world uh, as the nation states coming together to make joint agreements need to combat the loss of biodiversity. So all the plants and animals that have suffered from 200 years of industrial development, particularly in relation uh, to chemicals. Because of course 20 years or so earlier we get Rachel Carson with her seminal book Silent Spring where she first raises the awareness in the general public that there might be no birds to sing uh, next spring if we continue to dose the world with chemicals. In the 70s, we get the limits to growth, the report by the Club of Rome that says within 50 years then, if we don't actually stop the level of industrial activity uh, and the pollution and the negative environmental impacts it causes, industry itself will fail to function and uh, two-thirds of the world's population will be challenged with malnutrition. Uh, and then in 1988, just a few years before UNSAID, we get the uh, World Commission uh, on uh, Environment and Development uh, creating the so-called Brundtland Report, which for the first time raises this idea of sustainable development. Development that occurs in this generation without affecting the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And this all comes together to a point in 1992 where the world takes action. The second convention is a convention to combat desertification because of course industrial uh, development, also the spread of the city is depleting our water catchments and leading to less water availability and we start to see uh, drought and desertification as another component of human activity. Many of us may uh, have uh, read the Psalms uh, and uh, read bits of the Old Testament when we hear Isaiah talking about the, the lion lying down with the lamb he's not talking figuratively. In those days the forests of uh, Israel supported a wide array uh, of wildlife including uh, lions in extensive uh, cedar forests. So the Middle East was not always that dry and dusty desert that we see on TV. Largely a consequence of human civilization. But the third and most important I suppose of the conventions was the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I just want to show you um, a little bit how it looks. So all UN um, agreements start uh, with a convention. So the Climate Convention entered into force in 1994. Um, when it first came into force it had 195 countries that had signed the convention to take action on climate change. There are now 205 countries that have subscribed out of the world's roughly 200 and um, 
20 or so actual countries. It might be 270. I can't remember. Does, does anyone remember how many countries there are in the world right now? It's well over 200 anyway, but it's a good sign when you see that the vast majority of the world's nations have signed up to a convention. So essentially, uh, the convention is like, uh, it's a little bit like you might have um, uh, instructions for how uh, to build a car. It's kind of the basic platform rules for how to go about combating climate change. But in order to actually put that convention into practice, you need to have your uh, discussion forum or the place where uh, deliberation and decision making can take place. That happens uh, under the so-called conference or the COP, the conference of parties, because parties refers to governments, because apparently uh, governments uh, represent our interests when they go to these high-level uh, negotiating forums. So they are speaking uh, on our behalf uh, at COP. But COP itself is made up of a range of different uh, actors. So yes, there are the parties, the P here, uh, but there are also some O people, some observers. And the UN um, system allows for observer organisations to also attend the climate change talks. Lauren and I often attend the climate talks in that capacity and my university is registered uh, as an observer organisation. And we go to the forums that are open. Uh, when, the when the discussions start to get a little bit pointy, uh, they tend to close the doors. Uh, so it's not as transparent as we might like, uh, but if you can get there and if you can get yourself accredited, you have as much right to physically be there uh, as any of the other uh, government delegates. And a lot of people do go from all walks of life. Uh, you'll see indigenous people in all their uh, traditional wear. You'll see businessmen in their traditional wear. Um, you'll see uh, government people generally always wearing black and running around looking at the floor very fast. Uh, you'll get your uh, low bag, uh, badly dressed uh, NGO types who are, you know, on the, on the margins. They've got permission to like wave their placards. Uh, and you'll see little random actions happening with suddenly someone like going, <laughs> and then someone moving around like this. And there's a sign, it's all slow. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot of colour and movement, so it's quite an exciting place uh, to be um, with uh, the good cop and the bad cop countries coming together under one cop. But it's at the conference level uh, that decisions get made about how to actually develop uh, protocols or other instruments for operationalising uh, this. So yes, we've got this general manual of how to build a car, uh, but once you've built your car, you need to know how to drive your car. Of course, this car is solar powered and battery charged, unlike the normal car of the metaphor, which of course is spewing all that carbon into the atmosphere and creating the problem of global warming in the first place, but not our car. And that's a little bit the same 
with the convention itself because the Kyoto Protocol was like a first model attempt to create a new way of doing business where we try and put a price on carbon and see if we can actually use um, market forces to encourage behaviour change through uh, emissions trading. That's under uh, this beast here, uh, KP, or the Kyoto uh, Protocol. But this uh, grey area um, is the Paris Agreement, which I'm going to be talking about later. Uh, this is, comes into force in 2015, and it's, if you like, uh, the new way forward for developed and developing countries to work together to uh, keep the world's temperature below two degrees. And so, in addition to the Conference of Parties, we also have what are called the permanent subsidiary bodies. Uh, these are like uh, committees, essentially, that meet uh, at every conference and also uh, in the intersessionals, as they're called, the meetings between the big conferences. Those two main bodies is the subsidiary body for implementation, or SBI, and the subsidiary body for scientific technical advice, or SUBSTA. You get a lot of acronyms in the climate space. But essentially, th these are the driving committee-based engines of decision-making and implementation within the convention itself. But with 20 to 30,000 people attending, these conferences of the parties every year. It's quite a big show. Uh, organising all the commitments, following all the commitments, checking the country pledges as to what action they're going to take is a big job. Uh, and for that, this convention has the Climate Change Secretariat. There's almost 500 people uh, employed uh, to uh, help countries, uh, to provide advice, to register delegates uh, at the conferences uh, and so forth. That's based in Bonn in Germany. But of course, if you're going to combat climate change, someone's going to have to pay. So finance is a huge component of the climate change regime and always a source of conflict between the developed countries who are committed under the UN system to be what are called donor countries uh, and the developing countries uh, who are called recipient countries who receive uh, funds to help, uh, in this case, combat climate change. And there's always a source of tension between developed and developing countries over the degree to which the developed countries are providing the necessary funds for countries to respond, but also a lot of finger-pointing goes on to the developed countries for being historically responsible for this mess uh, in the first place. Uh, so there's quite a lot of argy-bargy, as we say, uh, going on in the climate talks. But once you've got your money, you need to allocate it to projects and programs on the ground. So there are a whole series of implementing agencies. They can be either NGOs, non-government organisations, or they can be aspects of the UN itself, like the UN Development Programme. It plays a big role uh, in implementing some of these projects and programmes aimed at combating climate change. Or it might be uh, 
uh, a multilateral bank or uh, some other uh, agency. But the activities themselves, because we live in a real world and combating climate change uh, happens uh, in reality on the ground, those national level activities that relate to either adapting or coping with the impacts of climate change or preventing or mitigating climate change, they all happen uh, at the national level once they've been funded. But finally, one of the key components of this whole regime is if you are going to actually uh, be held accountable for your action on climate change, you need to be able to count the carbon. You need to be able to report on what actions uh, different countries have taken. So the whole idea of uh, monitoring, uh, reporting and verification is really uh, a key aspect of the obligations of the signatories to uh, the Convention and its protocols and instruments. So that's kind of a, uh, an oversight of the climate change regime. And you might go, well, why do you need a map like this? Well, I'll just, I'll just go down the uh, scroll down. These are all single individual elements that make up the climate change regime. These are either committees or bodies or groups of actors or institutional arrangements or rules. But these are largely institutional subcomponents of the climate change regime. So what you have here is a schematic. So let's go to USAID. So here it is. Here's a little blurb about USAID. Um, it shows that it's a, it's a bilateral um, uh, institution. That's what BI means apparently in this map. IA and it's an implementing agency. So you can see what it's connected to uh, in the map. And then you can see uh, better in this nested view of the different uh, nature of how um, the various elements of the regime work. Um, this is all about finance. So that's that ring turned into a wedge. Here's the finance mechanism. That's the institutional mechanism that drives the allocation of finance under the climate change regime. And it's built up largely of UNFCCC financial mechanisms, so mechanisms that actually exist under the convention, the institutional arrangements that are in the rules. Um, but the UN also, uh, the, the convention also picks up non-UNFCCC um, uh, activities. So these might be multilateral investors, uh, they might be the private sector, um, they might be um, investment banks or, or developing banks, but they're not formally part of the convention itself, but they're still playing their role. And then I'll just quickly show you some of the primary activities uh, of the convention. So obviously mitigation uh, or preventing um, excessive carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, which is a consequence of burning fossil fuels that has given us the so-called greenhouse effect, 
because of course every time you burn carbon you never burn it completely clean, you always have exhaust uh, and those fine particles of combusted material get taken up into the atmosphere, they start to proliferate around the world, you can't get rid of them and they become like smog in the upper atmosphere. And so when the sun shines with ultraviolet light, it gets through that blanket fine. But when it hits the ground, of course, it's converted into infrared or radiant heat, and then that tries to get out of this planet that now has this fantastic layer of insulation uh, all the way around it. So that's, that's global warming. And people thought uh, when the convention was first uh, initiated in the early 90s that we could still prevent climate change. But of course the longer we have taken to uh, put things into action, uh, the harder that has become. But you can still see that there's quite a domination in this uh, map of blue for mitigation. And slightly less for adaptation. So this is kind of a historical uh, legacy, if you like, of the early uh, actors in the convention who were really pushing for mitigation. The developed countries particularly, who put a lot of pressure onto the developing countries to take their technology um, to um, develop approaches to mitigation, and they were partly successful under the Kyoto Protocol, uh, but now everyone uh, is responsible under the Paris Agreement. And I'll take you um, to that little bit of my show uh, in a minute. But I will point out though, if we look at finance, we can see, yes, there's quite a bit of activity, but interestingly, when we go to capacity building, which is actually the allocation of resources to help uh, parties uh, fulfil their capabilities, to help them with technical or institutional support. Um, it's more, less about giving people money and more about training people how to react and what to do with the money once they've been given the money um, that's very uh, lacking still um, in the convention. But I will show you um, a version of the map uh, before the Paris Agreement because it's quite interesting and it shows uh, visually uh, the efforts that have gone um, to trying to make the regime uh, more accountable and more uh, responsible uh, to uh, its members. So if we look at monitoring, reporting and verification, that keeping account of what you've done to reduce your emissions, to count your carbon, uh, we can see that yes, Obviously, there's a very big role for reporting per se, but we can only see two or three bodies within the permanent subsidiary bodies level who are responsible for monitoring, reporting and verifying um, activities under the Convention. But when we get to the post-Paris Agreement map, uh, we can see the conference of parties are now taking direct responsibility for a range of activities, particularly what are called nationally determined contributions, which I'll talk about in the next little bit of the show. Um, but also um, more work for the permanent subsidiary bodies and a significant role for the Secretariat because the Secretariat has become what's called the interim registry 
of the nationally determined contribution. So it's the place where the uh, beans are counted in terms of carbon, if I'm mixing my metaphors in a really weird way. <laughs> so I can't show you all of this. Uh, it's called climateregimemap.net. When you go home uh, on your laptops, um, have a go. It's kind of still, pro um, you know, sort of prototypey, so it doesn't work on your devices, uh, only on your desktops and laptops. Uh, so this, um, this presentation is called From Paris to Poland, uh, a post-mortem of the climate talks. Uh, and so I'm going to walk you through what's been going on for the last few years. Um, here's some of the publications. Um, so uh, Dr Eastwood and I um, have um, jointly published uh, material in this book. A great chapter on uh, the use of gender in the climate talks and how gender is used as a, what Eastwood refers to as conceptual currency, how people hang on to this idea because they can actually use it as a vehicle for their own uh, use. It's quite interesting. In fact, we've seen the rise of adaptation as language actually in the convention doing uh, a very similar thing. No one's talking adaptation in the beginning of the regime. People keep pushing for it and eventually it gets recognised as having substantial uh, value to the convention. So a great piece there by Lauren. Um, and then here are some of the other, um, some of the other um, publications that are quite useful. This one uh, is useful and it has a short title which is quite good. Uh, unlike um, stakeholder perceptions of the implementation capacity of the climate change regime in the implementation of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. I mean, I'm already asleep and I haven't started reading. <laughs> Which, of course, is a bit of a segue into why do I write climate fiction and, you know, all, all that kind of thing. But that's my academic credentials. Uh, but just in summary... Uh, the Paris Agreement is different from the Kyoto Protocol that it's, uh, pr that it's kind of, uh, this is the successor to, um, because it provides a means for rich and poor countries, for developed and developing countries, um, to make a collaborative commitment to collectively uh, reducing um, atmospheric uh, emissions with the aim of keeping global temperatures between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, that's like 3 to 5 Fahrenheit, uh, above, uh, current, uh, above what are called pre-industrial levels. So before the Industrial Revolution started um, using uh, combustion uh, as a means of generating uh, energy for uh, development, um, the world um, was not... Um, experiencing at that time such um, high ambient temperatures uh, and as we continue to pollute the atmosphere we are warming the planet. Uh, at the moment the planet is a little bit under one degree uh, above ambient background uh, temperatures and all the uh, projections uh, of the climate models indicate um, that we are getting a lot hotter than that. But 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius has been identified by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, 
This is a body of independent scientists um, whose role is to provide uh, the scientific uh, advice uh, to governments. They are advising us that anything uh, above two degrees is not conducive to sustainable development and is not conducive to us enjoying the lifestyle that many of us live uh, today. And certainly for those in the developing countries or those people affected by poverty everywhere, uh, it will be a lot less comfortable. But the current targets under the nationally determined contributions to keep so basically the UN's done this massive global carbon budget. It's worked out how much carbon there is in the atmosphere, how much carbon uh, countries are producing every year, because of course we have these records now, because we've had the convention uh, for uh, over 20 years. So they know um, how much is, uh, carbon pollution uh, is occurring annually, and they know how much a given country needs to donate uh, or contribute in terms of emissions reductions to keeping uh, global temperatures within that uh, 1.5 to 2 degree uh, window. But uh, the downside is we also know the bad news uh, and that is that if every single country fulfills its pledges of emissions reduction targets, for example, uh, Australia has uh, committed itself to a 26% uh, reduction in national emissions levels by uh, 2030. But even if all countries implement all their uh, actions and pledges now, they're still going to take us to 3.4 degrees above pre-industrial levels, which is not survivable in any decent form for any of us. This is Celsius. Uh, so I've mentioned that still within the talks, um, developed or donor countries are reluctant to allocate funds without commitments from developing countries. But those recipients of funds uh, in the so-called developed world, they insist they need more resources in order to fulfil those expectations. So we get into this vicious cycle. You're not taking enough action on combating climate change. Yes, but you're not funding us enough to take action. So we need more support from you. And it goes round and round. And we see this brinkmanship played out through uh, many, many of these conferences of parties uh, in this kind of fight for resources to combat climate change. Um, there are some worrying developments that I want to talk about briefly um, and one of the most worrying from my perspective is geoengineering uh, because the worse we get in terms of temperatures uh, and the more, the more radical the kinds of solutions uh, we need to take. So simply planting trees um, or having solar panels uh, and reducing, reusing recycling, all those green things that um, we've been told to do now uh, for several decades, uh, they are no longer enough. So people are looking at the techno-fix type solution and uh, they can often have uh, unintended consequences. Um, 
particularly uh, bioenergy, which is this crazy notion that you can burn forests for power because forests are a renewable resource. Uh, but of course, um, you can't actually uh, protect the biodiversity that you've just cleared in that area. And worse than all, a wood is wetter than coal and actually generates more carbon in the combustion. But because of a loophole under the Kyoto Protocol, uh, it's uh, allowed. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I want to focus a little bit on the market mechanism. So I talked about uh, emissions trading uh, and um, carbon credits and carbon offsets. Uh, that was in the old model of the Kyoto Protocol and the clean development mechanism where developed countries paid developing countries to install solar plants, to build hydroelectricity uh, facilities uh, and invest in, in, in green infrastructure. And a lot of that has been carried over into what's called Article 6 uh, of the Paris Agreement. This is the particular article that I follow. But many of the mistakes that were, were um, committed uh, under the Kyoto Protocol, particularly failing to recognise human rights when you come to building your solar plant or flooding your hydroelectric scheme, um, have kind of crept over into the new agreement. And there's real contention now uh, between different countries insisting uh, that human rights be included in any kind of market activities and strong resistance uh, from other countries. And You're about halfway done. That's great. <laughs> uh, so the future is still very much uh, uncertain uh, with <coughs> some big blockers not committing to what's called deep decarbonisation. Um, the US at the federal level uh, being among them, but by no means uh, the only one. Uh, this slide speaks for itself. Once upon a time we had four levels of uh, weather when it came to fire warnings. Now we've gone from low, moderate to catastrophic, like the fires you've just had in California. Um, here's a, uh, a weather, the Australian weather map. We now have uh, new colours from 50 to 54 degrees uh, to demonstrate um, temperatures that we've never seen before. So this is not some wacky conspiracy, folks. This is the Bureau of Meteorolo Meteor Meteorology taking temperatures and saying this is hotter than we've ever had it before and we need new colours. <laughs> Uh, so I'll briefly show you, there are 29 um, uh, articles under the Paris Agreement. Um, they include countries, as I say, keeping temperatures between one and a half and two degrees. There's a sustainable development mechanism designed to stimulate uh, green infrastructure and green investment. There's also finance um, to help with the transfer of technology um, to countries um, and also a capacity building framework to, to actually increase that level of uh, technical and institutional uh, support that countries need. And there's also a mechanism called the transparency mechanism which is aimed at actually reporting on who's paying what, where and how much is being spent and what's being done with it. Uh, as well as a mechanism for implementation and compliance. 
That's Lauren's favourite. She loves Article 15. I'm a fan of Article 6 myself. And that's what happens in the talks. You go, oh, what are you following? Oh, I'm following three. Oh. What are you? Six. Oh, I'm following six. Uh, it's a very strange world. Um, and so, just to explain, um, there are three particular activities under Article 6. One is around the International Transfer of Mitigation Outcomes, or ITMOs. Uh, this is government to government. Uh, if you, as a country, manage to meet your nationally determined contributions and you have excess, you've actually reduced your emissions, you're allowed to exchange those emissions uh, with another country to help them uh, offset theirs. Uh, this is being largely used by the aviation industry and in some ways it's kind of a robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, I'm not really that sure about it to be honest but there it is. Uh, the sustainable development mechanism is an attempt to re-kickstart uh, carbon trading and emissions trading. Uh, we'll have to see uh, whether it uh, gets, uh, gets any legs. We have Brazil particularly pushing very hard to keep the old rule book, um, which is not going to be particularly helpful if you are an <coughs> indigenous person whose, da whose land is about to be flooded or you're a small local community in India uh, who's about to be evicted because a company, a large electricity company, wants to uh, put a hydro scheme on your land and you don't have any say. So we're not really seeing much commitment to protecting human rights uh, in the new uh, agreement. And it's the one sticking point now. So watch this space. We will be seeing uh, what the future holds for the world's local communities uh, as these negotiations are finalised this year in Santiago in December. Uh, so as I said, there's some worrying developments. Geoengineering, uh, this idea that you can spray uh, alu aluminum uh, filings into the atmosphere because they're shiny, which means that the sun will hit them and the, the, the sunshine will be reflected back out into, the, uh, into space. Of course, the problem is, is if you fill the world with crap, then you can't actually get much sunlight in, so it might actually have an impact on the ground. Um, but uh, this, is a very pop this is very popular with the current administration here uh, because uh, with a technology like that you can continue to burn fossil fuels because you can continue to have business as usual. So this is a kind of have your cake and eat it option. Um, but the other one really that I was talking about is because there's a loophole in the Kyoto Protocol that effectively says any kind of... Um, land use, it's just a change of land use. So if you cut down a forest and replace it with a field of wheat, uh, you have, you've still got this kind of net um, uh, emission saving. Uh, so somehow forests have fallen out of uh, parts of the uh, Kyoto Protocol and now moving into the Paris Agreement and we are seeing extensive areas of the southeast of the US, for example, being clear, uh, broadacre clear cuts have returned and we're now cutting down our forests to send them to power stations in Europe and Britain where Britain burns in its single drax 
wood-fired power station, more forest than it cuts down in its own country uh, every year. So we're not seeing the logical action, which of course is nature-based solutions. So forest restoration, or pro-forestation as I've heard it called, uh, and biodiversity conservation. If you keep the plants and the animals and the ecosystems functioning properly, you will have a better chance of combating climate change. But if you take out your, your uh, plants and animals, uh, you will have, like, it will become a feedback effect because, of course, the soil will have no microbes, they won't be able to process uh, any more uh, atmospheric carbon, and we could see the whole system actually uh, amplifying in terms of negative feedbacks if we don't protect our forests and protect our biodiversity. Uh, so just in conclusion, um, not surprisingly, the UN media analysts heralded the Paris Agreement as a new era of climate action. Um, the civil society organisations call it weak, unbalanced and loophole riddled. So it's probably somewhere in between. Um, but unfortunately, given um, the threats to human rights under Article 6 and the track record of, of existing projects, uh, market mechanisms and emissions trading and those kinds of approaches may simply maintain uh, the status quo.